Yes, fascism. Fascism and white supremacy. Our democracy is under threat from the big bad orange man. We can't let it happen. And the MAGA Republicans, according to Biden, the greatest threat to democracy. Fascism. They're taking it over. We can't allow it to happen. Well, not exactly. Who is or who are the real fascists? We're going to find out today. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another episode of the Jamie Dury Show podcast. If you've not already done so, please subscribe to the show, and you can do so in one of several easy ways. Either go to the Google Play Store or the iTunes App Store, and you can download the free Podbean app, which is our hosting service, and you can subscribe that way. Or you can use your native podcast aggregator app and simply look up the Jamie Dury Show and uh, subscribe that way. Any way you choose to subscribe, you'll be able to make comments. Leave reviews. We really want more five-star reviews. We try to do a, a good job for you and bring you information that's not really discussed in most other places, or at least not in depth. So please give us a five-star review. Please refer us to your friends and share the show. That way it'll grow faster, and the faster it grows, the more we'll be able to do for you. So uh, I want to apologize, first of all, because I, um, I have not been absent because of... Uh, my own decision. My computer has been giving me trouble. I have ordered a replacement computer. They usually last about five years. It's sad that you pay a fortune for these things now, but even with top companies like Apple, if you use a computer as I do, as a, an industri- what I consider industrial use, where you're using it basically every day, multiple hours a day, and you're traveling with it, and you're going here and there, you're going to wear them out a little quicker. Temperature changes, stored in a vehicle, you drop your backpack occasionally, maybe once too often too hard. For people who use their laptops like a desktop because they don't want a big uh, computer at their home and they just put it on their desk, it never goes anywhere, they don't use it a lot, maybe they move it to the sofa while they're watching TV, they may get a lot more years out of it, but uh, I don't. So unfortunately, I have to order them custom the way I want because you, naturally you don't get the configuration that you want. If you get the right amount of RAM, you don't have enough hard drive space. If you have enough hard drive space, you don't have enough RAM or you have the more pro- more or less processing speed than you need. So you can't just go in the store and buy one that they have in stock. You have to order it and configure it the way you want. And mine won't be here for a couple of more uh, weeks or at least a week and a half. So we're trying to limp along with my old computer and uh, get a show in when we can. And once we get the new one up and running, we'll, we'll be back in full bigger, vigor rather, going all the way to Election Day. So all we keep hearing is about uh, we can't allow this threat to our democracy. You know, I, I find it appalling and really insulting to the intelligence that the very people who are doing these things, the Democrats, are the ones that are accusing everyone else of doing it. Who were the ones who decided to lock people down in their states forever for a virus for which the lockdowns we now know did nothing? Who were the people who wanted to deny people their very identity and compel them against their will to wear masks? Uh, We now know who they are, the blue states, the Democrats. Who were the ones that wanted to force people to accept vaccines that they didn't want? in an almost Third Reich, Nazi-like fashion, the Democrats. Who were the ones who were trying to censor free speech on the basis that it's misinformation and they're protecting us from misinformation? I was under the impression that free speech was just that, free speech, and that with very, very few limitations, like yelling fire in a crowd at theater, You have a right to contradict, to differ with the government's position. You have a right to freedom of expression. The founding fathers recognized that freedom of speech was the most important right. That's why they made it the First Amendment. Without the right to criticize, without the right to publicly call out and hold to account our elected officials who are elected to serve us. They are proxies for us. Remember that. They are not um, divine-inspired leaders. They are elected representatives. This is supposed to be government of the people, by the people, and for the people. 
not government of the elites, by the elites, and for the elites. So don't lose sight of that fact. And they're constantly doing this. They're threatening people. You say something you're not supposed to say, you get criticized. Look at Eric Adams, a Democrat, a man who was towing the party line until he started complaining about the immigration process. Next thing you know, we see the FBI snatching his cell phone on the street. Now, look, make no mistake about it. Maybe Eric Adams did something wrong with his campaign. We don't know yet. Everyone has the presumption of innocence. But the, the procedures are, if you want access to someone's data on their cell phone or their, their devices, their computers, whatever, uh, you can simply go to their carrier with a subpoena, and they provide you with all of that information. You don't have to grandstand and not even go to his office, but to grab him on the street like a common thug and take his cell phones and his devices right then and there. That's grandstanding. That's being done not for any legitimate investigative purpose. That's being done for the power of intimidation, making examples of people so that they never dare try and oppose you again. And we see the same thing happening with Donald Trump. If Donald Trump is really that unfit to be president, can't we rely on people to make their own decision? Or could it be that people realize that the government is going too far, ramming things down people's throats that they don't want at an accelerated rate, and that only a man like Donald Trump stands athwart that and is yelling, stop. Everyone else, as you saw in last night's debate, they're just marginal secondary players. And it's interesting how quickly the field is uh, narrowing. Now you only had basically four players on the stage. You have Vivek Ramaswamy, you have Chris Christie, Nikki Haley, and of course Florida Governor uh, Ron DeSantis. Of the four, uh, probably DeSantis is the most capable in terms of experience of actually having run something. Vivek Ramaswamy I like, but I'm not 100% convinced by him. Uh, On one hand, I like the way he thinks. I like what he's talking about in terms of dismantling the administrative state when he gets in. On the other hand, I don't know that he has the wherewithal, the power to do it, and I don't know everything about his past. Uh, So I'm a little skeptical there. Nikki Haley, I'm completely dissatisfied with. I don't think she has it. There's no question in my mind that, you know, every four years you get this call, this is the most important election of our of our lifetime, it's uh, almost always as overplayed as it is misapplied. But in this particular case, I really don't think it is being over uh, applied or misapplied or overplayed. We see an inexorable lurch towards the left and an absolute uh, orchestrated effort to destroy this country from opening up the floodgates for illegal immigration. And let me be clear, ladies and gentlemen, don't be deceived and uh, be convinced or seduced that these people who are coming across our southern border are families that are seeking a better way of life. First of all, even if they were, no one has an absolute right to come here. There is no nation in the world that allows unfettered immigration into its ranks because it knows no one nation can survive that. They've made all manner of exemptions for these people in the Biden administration to allow them to go to work, even though they're here illegally. And only 2% of them have applied for work. So, so much for the fact that we need these people uh, to come here and do uh, jobs that Americans won't do. All they want to do is sit on their ass and let Americans who are working pay for it. That we don't need. If you want to sit and do nothing, Just stay where you were and sit and do nothing there. You have no right to come here. You should not be allowed to come here. So we have an orchestrated effort to undermine our uh, sovereignty by flooding the country with illegals. There are not families coming in. The overwhelming majority are young men of, of military draft age, which leads me to believe that terrorist cells are flooding across the border in droves. We have no idea who these people are and when they're going to be activated. It's going to be a very, very difficult time uh, in the future when things finally go. So it's the Democrats who are doing all this. And of all these people 
that are on that stage, I don't know that any of them, some may do better than others, I don't know any of them that will have the fortitude and the ability and the political capital to be able to stand up to this and put a stop to it and try and turn back the clock. Uh, DeSantis, I've said before, as good a job as he's done as governor in Florida, that's only because he has a rather conservative state with a Republican electorate, and he has a primarily Republican legislature. He's not going to get away with it and have the same effectiveness when he goes to Washington. Nikki Haley will be chewed up and spat out in Washington. I don't know that Vivek Ramaswamy can hold up. Maybe he's good at organizing because he's a... uh, uh, a businessman, but I don't know that he can survive. And Chris Christie is is really laughable. While he why he's even on that stage, why he even has the the audacity to think that people are really interested in what he has to say is ridiculous. He's a fat slob, and I wrote Chris Christie off after Bridgegate. Now I know that politics is a dirty business. And I know that a lot of people were inconvenienced by Bridgegate, but it wouldn't be out of character for any politician who was sabotaged by someone he thought he expected loyalty from. In this case, uh, Chris Christie being sabotaged by the Fort Lee mayor who didn't support him, even though he was a Republican, I believe, and then caused that problem that caused the traffic jam on the GW, which really paralyzed Fort Lee. Hey, I understand politics is a dirty business. Why did I lose respect for Christie? Because he allowed two of his subordinates to hang for it and swing for it. And when they were convicted, he went and held a press conference and apologized for the incident, said that he had nothing to do with it, but that he was accountable because he was the governor of New Jersey. Now, if that's true, you say that for five minutes, 10 minutes, take a few questions and you leave. But when you stand up there repeating yourself over and over and over and over and over and over again for the better part of two hours and change, everyone knows you did it. You did know about it. It was done at your behest. You're guilty. And you let your subordinates swing for it. No respect for a man like that. He was rescued from political obscurity by Donald Trump and given a position, given the opportunity to have a position, couldn't wait to stay, stand there on that stage back in 2016 when Donald Trump won, and now he's a backstabbing piece of crap. Christie is finished in the Republican Party. He's finished in New Jersey. He has to go. You want more fascism? New York State is probably one of the most heavily taxed states in the country. People are leaving in droves. People are fed up with the lockdowns. People are fed up with the crime rate. They're fed up with the illegals. And if that isn't enough to force the remaining taxpaying base out, now they've decided to institute this congestion pricing plan, and nobody's going to get an exemption. What about all the cops and firemen who have to respond or work, rather, to precincts and firehouses that are located below 60th Street? Because that's the line of demarcation. You go below 60th Street, you incur a $15 tax every day during the week from 5 a.m. to 9 p.m. It's 3.50 before 5 a.m. It's 3.50 after 9 p.m. On the weekends, it's going to be 9 p.m. to 9 p.m. 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. is going to be the peak, and outside those hours is off-peak. But taxes are seven days a week. No mercy on Sunday. You're paying. Okay, you're paying. Now, this is just what's proposed. It may change. It may go up. But their argument is we can't have any exemptions because if we have exemptions, then the people who are paying are going to have to pay a lot more. Now, how are people supposed to afford this? A cop and a fireman coming into the city now, and they don't have any choice. Well, first of all, I believe that you're going to see many people coming in before 5 a.m. So you're going to see a different um, traffic pattern. You're going to have people coming in a lot earlier so they can hit 60th Street before 5 a.m. That's the first thing. But the cops and firemen, uh, most cop tours start at 7 a.m. So if they're starting at 7 a.m., or 7.15 a.m., whatever. Uh, What, are they going to get here at 5 o'clock and do two hours overtime hanging out in the city? No, they're not going to do that. What you're going to get is you're going to get a lot of people that are going to want to work midnights because they can avoid the tax. The 4 to 12 people are going to get screwed. The day people are going to get screwed. The firemen, they work 24-hour shifts, so perhaps if they come in at midnight, 
they can avoid the, uh, the hit, uh, depending on how their shifts go. I don't know when they report. I'm not as familiar with them. But all these city workers, hospital workers, how are they going to do this? Now, if you have to pay, even if you come in five days a week and you're paying $15 a day, that's $75 a week. That's $300 a month. It's insane. Even if you try and go off peak, it's another $86 you don't need. So they're just trying to force people out. They're trying to crush people. And that's what they're doing with Donald Trump. Does anybody really believe that Donald Trump would be uh, suffering the weight of these four trials if he were not a declared candidate? You know, on the one hand, there may be some vindictive people that might say, well, he deserves it. We're going to force him. We're going to make an example of him. What they're really trying to do is, one, trying to prevent him from being elected again because they fear what's going to happen. And two, they want to make an example of him so that it stands as a stern warning and a stark warning for any other patriot, any other businessman to whom the country has been good to that wants to pay it back by salvaging it, that wants to get into this closed little game they've got for themselves in Washington, D.C. Don't you dare, because we're going to crush you. Well, the attempt to crush Donald Trump uh, isn't going as smoothly as people would like. Yeah, you're getting a lot of indications that he's uh, overwhelmed and he's under siege, but you're also getting this through a very, very skewed media. Now, here's an interesting article that uh, covered the testimony of a particular expert in the Donald Trump trial. Now, at the heart of this trial in New York uh, is the allegation that Donald Trump, and this is really it, that Donald Trump overvalued his real estate holdings so that he would appear richer than he was, so that he could get more favorable rates of interest for money he would borrow for capital improvement and expansion of his business. Many people with holdings borrow against them. And even though all of these loans were repaid on time, and in some cases early, and even though the lending institutions that lent them the money say they do not feel ill-served in any way, and they don't see any evidence of fraud, the state of New York with Letitia James are trying to say it doesn't matter whether you uh, do it, whether you pay it back on time or not, if you obtained a better rate because you overvalued your, your property, you're guilty of fraud. Well, how do you determine that? Well, right off the face of it, we know that Judge Engeron, who's been a Democrat all his life, has always supported Democrats, has always given to Democrats, never given a Republican, should have re- recused himself from the start, is already prejudiced against Donald Trump. How do we know this? Because he's valued Mar-a-Lago, one of the crown jewels in the Trump holdings, his golf course in Florida, his summer residence, indeed is now his main residence since he became a Floridian. He's valued that at $18 million. Now, that's absolutely ludicrous. Any of you out there, whether you're a Trump supporter or a Trump hater, you know. Let's take with you folks in New York, because New York is a big blue state, so I'm sure I'm speaking to a lot of people who hate Donald Trump. You know damn well that the property taxes you pay in New York are not predicated on the market value of your home. Your home has been assessed by the state of New York, by the county, at a certain value for the purpose of levying taxes against you. And the amount that they've assessed it at is far lower than what you could sell it for on the open market. You know this. Because if they ever taxed you at the same mill rate on the actual fair market value of your home, most people, especially older people who bought their homes when they were a fraction of what they cost now and don't really have that sort of income stream would almost, would not almost, they would have to sell the house because they couldn't afford to pay the tax on it. Now, Mar-a-Lago has an estimated value on the open market by most fair-minded of appraisers of between a billion and a billion and a half dollars. That's a far cry from 18 million the 18 million that the state of Florida appraises it at for the purposes of collecting and levying property taxes. Now, 
Just for those of you who don't know, there's a thousand millions in a billion. This guy is saying it's only worth 18 billion. He is so far removed from the true value of the property that's not even funny. Now, the Trump defense team called a very interesting witness the other day, a man named Eli Bartov, who happens to be a professor of accounting at NYU's Stern School of Business, a very highly respected school of business. A lot of people love NYU. Uh, It's not in the Ivy League per se, but it's so well respected. It's often looked at by employers and other people in, in academia as the equivalent of an Ivy League education. Although what we saw in Washington yesterday from the presidents of three Ivy League institutions leaves that in doubt. We'll get to that in due course. But uh, Professor Bartov was brought by the Trump Organization over vigorous objection from the attorneys from Letitia James's office uh, arguing before the court. They argued more strenuously against this witness than any other. And on that basis, um, one of Trump's lawyers uh, asserted that the reason why they were so opposed to this witness, he says, is because they're terrified of this witness. Now, the judge finally allowed him to testify. Now, what was the objection? The objection on the part of the state attorneys argued uh, that the professor had expertise in valuing publicly traded companies, not Deutsche Bank's decisions. But Deutsche Bank, which was the bank in question that loaned Trump the money, they have to be able to public to value publicly traded companies and private companies and so forth in order to uh, evaluate whether uh, it's wise to grant a loan. In any event, Mr. Bartov or Professor Bartov said that after reviewing the lawsuit against Donald Trump and his organization, he said the most important evidence are the credit reports prepared by Deutsche Bank. Now, why is this an issue? Because they're trying to say that Trump, in his reports, now he doesn't do it himself, he hires accountants, uh, accountants make these valuations, uh, they're saying that they, the Trump Organization, inflated the value of the Trump Organization's holdings. Now, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that if you came, if I came to you uh, looking to borrow money, and I told you that my property was worth a certain amount of money, you're not going to accept my word for it when you're loaning me money on the strength of that. You're going to conduct your own independent appraisal. And if it comports with what you think is fair, you're going to grant me the money. And if it doesn't, you're going to tell me to go pound sand. Which is why Professor Bartoff is saying that the Deutsche Bank's credit reports are far more important than the Trump statements of financial condition. He says... They really tell the whole story. Quote, you can spin it any way you want, but everything is there. Now, he teaches students how to do credit reports, just like the ones that Deutsche Bank prepared on the Trump Organization. Okay? And he even went on to say that the person who prepared this report may well have been one of his students in the past. Quote, I am not going to provide an independent independent valuation of these because it's not necessary, not because I can't do it, he explained. My main finding here is that there is no evidence whatsoever of any accounting fraud. The SFOCs over the years were not materially mistaken. Okay, these are the statements of financial... Uh, a financial condition. That's the acronym is F SFOCs. Okay? They're not mistaken. When he said that, Judge Engeron asked if he meant that the Attorney General's complaint had no merit. And Professor Bartoff responded in kind, This is absolutely my opinion. You read the complaint. The complaint has numerous allegations of valuations of GAAP, Generally Accepted Counting Principles. There is no specific reference to a provision of GAAP that was violated. Quote, some of them really bordered on absurd, he added, saying that a few hours of accounting 
would have sorted out what the Attorney General assumed was a violation. So we have one of the foremost experts in the country, perhaps the world, on the preparation of accounting statements for the purpose of valuing a company, uh, for the purpose of extending credit to that company, stating that all of this money, time, and taxpayer dollars that have been wasted by the Attorney General of the State of New York, all to conduct a political vendetta, could have been avoided if they were honest and just did a few hours of accounting and sorted through this, they would have realized they would have had no case. Now, I'm of the opinion that they probably knew they had no case, and they're doing this at the behest of higher powers in the Democratic Party, either President, former President Obama, who is the hand inside the glove that is now Joe Biden, or the Biden administration itself, or Valerie Jarrett, or any one of a number of people in the shadow government that seems to be running this country, because we know for sure that the man we see every day tripping up staircases trying to board Air, Air Force One and defecating in his pants, Joe Biden, is not running anything. So he said that some of these allegations bordered an absurd and that a few hours of accounting would have sorted out what the Attorney General assumed was a violation. He went on to say that he had to run through thousands of GAAP provisions and couldn't find a single GAAP provision that was violated. He says, I couldn't find one. That sworn testimony from the foremost expert in the country under penalty of perjury. He goes, he did find one error in calculation. However, it was not an unusual type of error. He added that he has written an academic paper on inadvertent error versus fraudulent error, finding that 3 to 4% of companies report uh, errors in audited financial statements. The SFOCs were not audited and were, in fact, marketing pieces meant to introduce the Trump organization to potential financial partners. That's different than presenting an audited statement which you're saying is being certified by an independent organization as being true and factual. Quote, he went on to say, I tell banks not to rely on SFOCs because they're not audited. I served as an auditor for eight years. There is not one company I audited that I did not find errors. And he's making a distinction here. Simple mathematical errors are innocent errors. That's far cry from deliberate misrepresentation, which are fraudulent errors. He made that distinction. So, I don't know how else to say it. It seems to me that this witness, more than any other single witness that has testified in this case, has been the most damaging to the attorney generals. And in order to find the Trump organization guilty, this, this judge would only have to ignore certain appellate rulings, which he seems uh, loath to abide by, but he would have to completely dismiss, discount, and not credit at all Mr. Bartoff's testimony. And I would love to see what the attorney general does to attempt to refute Mr. Bartoff's testimony. In the wake of his testimony, during a break, uh, former President Trump told reporters that this case never should have been brought. This is a weaponization of the justice system, and this is something nobody has ever seen to this extent. And on that regard, it is, in fact, election interference. Now, a very, very interesting thing happened in Washington uh, the other day, uh, day before yesterday. The presidents of Harvard... Penn State and MIT, all of whom are women, testified before Congress because Congress has been justifiably concerned now that the Republicans are in charge of the House again of all these calls for genocide of the Jews, all of the anti-Israel, anti-Jewish sentiment that's been seen in this country in the wake of the Israeli Defense Force's legitimate attempt to exterminate Hamas from their midst after that cowardly attack on October 7th, which resulted in the deaths of 1,400 Israelis, beheadings, kidnappings of innocent women and children, and a host of other horrific 
terror acts. There have been people killed on the other side in response to this, but all of this blood is on the hands of Hamas because unlike other legitimate forces and organizations in the world, the Israelis don't put terrorist cells inside hospitals and schools. They don't hide munitions inside hospitals and schools. They don't dig terror tunnels underneath hospitals and schools, thereby making them not only a legitimate, but a very, very necessary target to strike in the interest of self-preservation. Hamas did all of this. And to try and sit there and blame the Israelis, I think, is beneath contempt. Beneath contempt. Uh, A Harvard Jewish student organization has come out and criticized Claudine Gay. She's the president of Harvard over her testimony uh, over the anti-Semitism on the campus. Quote, when pressed during her testimony, President Gay repeatedly equivocated, refusing to characterize calls for the genocide of Jews as a breach of Harvard's code of conduct, instead saying the offense depends on context. In what context does anyone think it's acceptable to call for the extermination of the Jewish people, or of any people, but particularly the Jewish people who have been victimized in the past and were almost exterminated by the Nazis, and whose war cry and code has always been never again, and for damn good reason? Does anyone really think that if people had gone on Harvard and protested against African-American students saying, we, don't, we, we can't have them here, we need to exterminate them all or send them back to Africa, does anyone think that President Gay would have said that the, it all depends on the context or, she would have, or would she have roundly denounced it? The Harvard Jewish organization, student organization said President Gay's refusal to draw a line around threatening anti-Semitic speech as a violation of Harvard's policies is profoundly shocking given explicit provisions within the conduct code prohibiting this kind of bullying and harassment. When students have to barricade themselves in their dorms or in their rooms or in classrooms to protect themselves against anti-Semitic violence, the context is plain enough. And even an educated idiot like Ms. Gay should know that it's a no-go and that you should stop hiding behind semantics and call it for what it is. And we have to give kudos to Representative Elise Stefanik of New York, who really obliterated uh, the Harvard president, uh, Ms. Gay. The Harvard Hillel, which is a Jewish organization, noted that chance to globalize the Intifada, which is an endorsement of violent terrorist attacks against Jewish and Israeli civilians from the river to the sea, is a standard eliminationist slogan intended to deprive Jews of their right to self-determination in Israel. And these slogans, these utterances, have become routine. Now, it's clear that these things are statements that need to be condemned. So you can try and hide behind the First Amendment all you want, Ms. Gay, by saying, and I'll quote you again, we embrace a commitment to free expression and give a wide berth to free expression, even of views that are objectionable, outrageous, and offensive. I think that if they were views that were objectionable and outrageous and offensive to you, you would come out against them. The only reason why you're not condemning these is because you yourself are an anti-Semite. A call for genocide, this is a statement from the Harvard Hillel, quote, a call for genocide against Jews is always a hateful incitement of violence. An incitement of violence, a call for violence, is not protected by the First Amendment. It's the equivalent of yelling fire in a crowded theater. So now we know without question, uh, we can go over the testimony of the other two presidents of MIT and Penn, but they basically mirrored uh, the testimony of Ms. Gay from Harvard. None of them were willing to condemn the growing wave of anti-Semitic 
sentiment uh, on their campuses. None of them were willing to denounce these calls for violence. None of them were willing to take action against the students who were practicing it. And none of them were affording adequate protections to Jewish students in those schools. And I'd like to point out that as Jewish Americans, you know, over the years when Harvard was in its early days, uh, I'm sure it was a great white Anglo-Saxon Protestant enclave. And it was a long time coming before Jews were allowed to attend that school or weren't deliberately kept out. But in this day and age, uh, as uh, American Jews have achieved a great level of affluence and are well represented in every profession and in business, uh, increasingly Jewish people are among the biggest donors to these institutions of higher learning. And they're now seeing that money being limited and cut off. And I say here, here. That is the only way to bring these leftist indoctrination centers, because that's all they are. They're no longer institutions of higher learning. They are indoctrination centers for leftist and communist ideology. The only way you're going to bring them to heel is to cut off their money. <coughs> and the judgment is going to come from their own lips because of their own stupidity in not doing what's right. And the reason why they're not doing what's right is because they're part of the problem. They share these sentiments. Make no mistake about it. The upper echelons of these elite universities share this anti-Semitic garbage that many of their student body is spewing. And that is why they're not speaking out and denouncing it. Not because of any fealty to the First Amendment. That's a bunch of shit. Sorry to get down in the gutter, but I, sometimes colloquial terms are the most apt. Now, I would be remiss if I let this program expire without addressing the elephant in the room. Today, as many of you know or should know, is December 7th, the 81st anniversary of the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, the attack which launched American participation in World War II. Many, many men lost their lives that day. I think over 1,200 Americans. Some of them died a slow and agonizing death, trapped in the sunken battleships in Pearl Harbor, the USS Arizona, for one. Unable to be rescued. It was horrific. But was it really a surprise? For years, my grandfather, who hated Roosevelt, always said that he precipitated it. And there's a lot of evidence for this. Remember, President Roosevelt was the longest-serving president we ever had. This was before the amendment that limited the number of terms a president could serve. Now, there's an old joke I used to circle around that said um, something along the lines of that Roosevelt thought that only he could be president. And then Harry Truman came along and proved that anyone could be president. And then Jimmy Carter came along and proved that we don't need a president. Uh, it's true. Roosevelt was an elitist, and he thought that he could be president forever. And he was a pretty good BS artist. Don't forget, he took over in the aftermath of Herbert Hoover. Now, Herbert Hoover was the president during the Depression. Now, Herbert Hoover didn't cause the Depression, but he was blamed for it. He ran for president in 1928, was inaugurated in 29, and in October of that year, the stock market crashed, and uh, they felt that he didn't do enough to extricate us from that. Now, Roosevelt came in and promised everybody he was going to do all manner of things that were going to extricate us from the Depression, the New Deal, um, expanding government subsidies, government work projects, deficit spending, which we began to get into on a grand scale at that time. And the reality is none of these things really brought us out of the Depression. They were just a Band-Aid on the problem, and nothing uh, was going to solve it. But Roosevelt knew one thing that would solve it, entry into World War II. At that time, warfare was conducted very differently than it's conducted now. Yes, we spend a lot of money on defense, but we don't have the size armies that we once had. 
The United States military, even with the reserves all in, may be two and a half million people, three million at tops. By the end of World War II, with a country that had less than half the population that we have now, we had almost 16 million men and women under arms. That's incredible. That's one-tenth of the population. That's why World War II was called the Popular War, because the cause was just, and everyone in the country literally knew someone who was serving. It was either your child, your nephew, your neighbor's child, the butcher's boy down the street, the delivery boy. You knew someone. And so it had a lot of public support. But prior to the war, it didn't have much public support. In fact, 88% of the population was against it. Now, I'm not saying we didn't need to get into that war, but getting into that war by deceiving people just so you don't incur political damage is contemptible. Roosevelt's policies, having failed to extricate us from the Depression, put him in a precarious position when he ran for re-election. Don't forget, he ran for re-election in 32, again in 36, and again in 1940. That was going to be for his third time, third term. And in 1940, since the war was heating up in Europe and had been going on since 1939, one of his main campaign promises was to assure the American people that our boys would not set foot on foreign soil, that we would not get involved in World War II. Now, he did, to some extent, violate that by helping Churchill and the Allies with uh, munitions and supplies, um, but that did not violate his promise of getting American boys on American uh, on foreign soil. And it did help the economy somewhat because we had increased production to help Churchill in those places, um, England and what have you. But he needed a bigger effort. He knew that once we got into World War II, the amount of men and material that would be required would be enough to drive the economy through the roof. Wartime production was so intense that all of the combined assembly lines of Ford and General Motors and the Chrysler Corporation were all geared towards producing military equipment, tanks, airplanes, etc. Nobody could get a new car. Restrictions on material were quite severe. Every bit of production was brought to bear to defeat the totalitarian threat posed by Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. But how are we going to do it? You could go to the public and say, I know I promised American boys weren't going to go on foreign soil, but we really have to get involved, and people would accuse you of going back on your word, and he wasn't going to be reelected, and Roosevelt wanted to be president forever. Now, we had broken the Japanese code some years earlier, so we were privy to a great deal of information about what their intentions were. And so we knew in October of 1940 that um, problems were coming. In fact, there was a memorandum uh, that was uh, produced by the United States Naval Intelligence Service uh, that listed eight steps to induce Japan to commit an overt act of war. First, the main strength of the U.S. fleet should be retained in Hawaii. This Roosevelt promptly arranged over the objections of James Richardson, commander-in-chief of the U.S. fleet. Over the following year, McCollum's other suggestions were also adopted. So what happened was, Roosevelt knew the Japanese wanted to get into the war. They knew they wanted to attack the United States. They knew they wanted to expand their power in the Pacific, and they knew that we wielded a great deal of influence in the Pacific with our Navy. In fact, it was World War II that was the pivotal point in world history, where naval supremacy switched from the Royal Navy, which was deemed to have ruled the seas from the late 1700s up until 1945, and then the American Navy became preeminent and predominant throughout the world following the conclusion of World War II. At that time, we became the most powerful navy in the history of the world. <clears throat> and a lot of our strength was in Pearl Harbor. So what they basically did was they conducted uh, themselves in such a way 
to make it very easy for the Japanese to attack and be successful. Now, we have a great article that was written by an historian here uh, that talks about what these things were. It's called, um, it's a book, actually. The article's about a book called The Day of Deceit, The Truth About FDR and Pearl Harbor, written by Mr. Robert Stinnett. He was a Navy veteran of World War II, and he spent his life as a newspaper journalist and photographer. And he argues that there's ample evidence was available to the U.S. administration and military officials through Japanese intercepts, decoded and translated before to attack, to indicate that Japan was planning to attack Pearl Harbor. Uh, In fact, Roosevelt so wanted it to be attacked that he rescinded an order by one of the admirals uh, who had sent out a reconnaissance to the North Pacific. On November 23rd, just weeks before the attack, Admiral Kimmel, the fleet commander-in-chief, ordered without the approval of the White House, and I don't know that he needed it because he was the fleet, fleet commander, a search for Japanese forces north of Hawaii, and he had moved the Pacific fleet into the North Pacific. When Roosevelt found out They feared that the fleet might encounter the Japanese convoy at sea, and a great naval battle would ensue, but not the sort of cowardly attack that might precipitate uh, involvement in a war by a major shift in public sentiment. Once the White House found out, the ships were ordered back to Pearl Harbor. On November 25th, the Navy in Washington told Kimmel to route all trans-Pacific shipping southward leaving the North Pacific vacant. Now, why was that? Well, because even though they weren't military ships, any civilian ships that were in the North Pacific could very easily encounter the Japanese fleet and warn the United States Navy. Roosevelt did not want that Japanese fleet discovered. He wanted a surprise attack. So all of these things allowed the Japanese to successfully attack Pearl Harbor. And the attack was so horrific. The loss of life was so great that when Roosevelt, and obviously he knew this is what would happen, when he made his speech the next day calling December 7th a day that will live in infamy, the people rallied to him and not only did not hold him to his promise of not sending American boys on foreign soil, they demanded that he do so. They demanded blood. And that's how we got into World War II. And World War II and the production that we had to uh, uh, gear up for set us on a course of economic prosperity that's almost been unmatched in American history. What everybody seems to forget, see, it's very easy to to forget that now, of course, everybody knows there's a lot of garments that are made in places like Mexico and the Far East and Southeast Asia and in uh, India and China, and is manufacturing in those places. But at the end of World War II, the third world nations, China, um, well, Japan, of course, was an industrialized nation, but they lost the war. But China, South Pacific, uh, Southeast Asia, Mexico, India, these places were not as industrialized. The real, real home of production production line production, real heavy-duty manufacturing was Europe and the United States. Well, Europe was devastated by the war. Much of Germany was destroyed. Much of England was destroyed. France, a lot of these things needed to be rebuilt. Japan was destroyed, so or areas of it. So these things had to be rebuilt. The only intact manufacturing center, because war was not visited on our soil, was the United States. And so the United States was basically rebuilding the world, and that's why you had an era of prosperity. I was born uh, in the late 50s. I was a little boy, so I didn't remember any of it. I wouldn't become a toddler until the 60s. But in the 1950s, it was very easy to have the American dream because one man, one husband, could make enough money to support his family that his wife didn't, didn't have to work. She could stay home if she wanted to, and uh, spend time with her children and then go back to work when they were grown 
or vice versa. I guess the wife could work and the husband could stay home, but you didn't need a two-income family is my point. One spouse working was more than enough to provide a comfortable living. We don't have that now. Now you got both spouses working and in many cases working multiple jobs just to meet ends meet. You know, there are holes in the dike. People are trying to put their fingers in it, but the whole damn dike is crumbling around us. But I think we all need, regardless of how it started, to have a moment of silence and remember those heroes who gave their lives in Pearl Harbor for the cause of liberty. And at least they know, I hope, through God Almighty, that their sacrifice was not in vain. Because even though it propelled us into a war that the American public prior to that event did not wish to engage in, it was a moral and just cause, and we prevailed. We saved the civilized world. And their sacrifice paved the way for that to happen. A moment of silence, please. Thank you for that. Please join us regularly. Please tell your friends about the show. Please give us a five-star review. Please share the show with others. We're trying to do as much as we can to give you information that is not readily available in other places. And feel free to email me if you have any questions or a topic you'd like me to cover at jamiedury1776 at gmail.com. For The Jamie Dury Show, I'm Jamie Dury.